0: Welcome to 2021, where time travel isn't a thing. We would travel to the future, get technology and design pioneers from 2050 to teach us how to build a brilliant tomorrow. But that's against the rules of physics. Instead, we bring you the pioneers of today, tech enthusiasts, creatives, entrepreneurs and listen to their individual stories, their purpose and how they became the change makers they are today in their industry and learn about what inspires them and how they function. This is the See You Tomorrow podcast. Welcome to the See You Tomorrow podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Logie. I'm a creative entrepreneur and a catalyst for change, and I get inspired by interviewing people who are creating change for tomorrow's world. The See You Tomorrow podcast is powered by Harbour Space, the university of the future. Find out more at harbour.space. Today, we're talking to John Hutt, culinary expert at Remy Robotics here in Barcelona. Originally from Scotland, and you grew up in well, you partly grew up in the states. Yes, and gained a lot of experience in the restaurant industry. And now you're based here in Barcelona. How long, and you've been here for how long in Barcelona? I've been here almost two years now. Oh right. So um, tell us about your journey into the you know into the food industry. How did you end up in the food industry? So I ended up in the food industry more
1: as a when I, was, when I was young, so when I was in school, I started working in restaurants more as a job when I was in, in what you call in the States high school uh, and later after high school. Just working in kitchens because I enjoyed working in kitchens and also because I needed a job. Back then, which sounds like a long time ago, but it wasn't actually that long ago, food and cooking and being a chef is more, was more of a trade. It was like being a plumber, being a cook. And so I started working as a cook to be a cook. And I found that I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed making things. I enjoyed creating things. I enjoyed working with people in the kitchen. And I enjoyed the aspect of food and community that working in kitchens and feeding people did. So I decided to pursue that as my career, as Mm -hmm. my career path.
0: Right. Did you, have you always sort of, you know, in terms of, as a a, a young child, were you influenced by, you know, being around food? I mean, were your parents cooking?
1: My parents were cooking. My mom was cooking, for sure. But um, it wasn't, we're not, a huge it wasn't a big foodie like a foodie family we we would cook and we would eat and we would have you know lunch on Sundays
0: and Saturdays and things like that right and but your father he's a scientist
1: my father's a physicist a physicist sorry yeah Yeah. he's an expert in uh, lasers and ultraviolet light and assisted in inventing the laser printer actually
0: amazing his claim to fame yeah Amazing. So um, was that based, was that in the US? He did that? That was,
1: well, he he did the laser printer stuff when he was in university in South, in Cambridge. So we spent some time there and then we moved to the States and did, and he, when he got a new job in the States, we moved to Atlanta, actually.
0: Okay. And then you dispersed from there. You, you ended up going to San Francisco and... Exactly. New York, and you know, how, what was your experience like living in the states and you know, learning the ropes of being a chef with no background in it? I mean, it's, it, did you find it an easy journey or? It...
1: Well, it's it's super difficult to work in work in kitchens. It's rough. It's rough work. It's definitely long hours on your feet, all the, all that kind of thing. The, the really interesting thing that I think the U.S. gave me that probably wouldn't have happened in Scotland or in the U.K. in general, is that the thing about the U.S. is that so many people from so many different backgrounds that you can work in a restaurant and learn completely techniques from a completely different culinary background. So I worked in a lot of Chinese restaurants, for example, learning Chinese techniques, uh, which was super interesting. I worked in Southern American restaurants learning about barbecue and all these worked in a bagel restaurant, learning how to do bagels. uh, And you can get all these kind of disparate culinary, uh, culinary techniques and ideas. And I think only, really, only in the U.S. can you can you do that, especially in New York, especially in New York and San Francisco as well, because in San Francisco I was based in Chinatown. Yeah. But I was opening I was opening restaurants in the financial district and in Barcadero, and it was kind of a fast casual coffee coffee chain we were doing with a big central kitchen doing doing uh, food for people in San Francisco. But I lived in Chinatown, and it was. It was very, very interesting, very amazing. The food is delicious. It's kind of like a little enclave of a, of, of a piece of China of the past that doesn't really exist within China anymore. And the New York and San Francisco and the U.S. in general is very interesting for that.
0: Yeah, so you um, gained a lot of experience in you know, different types of, of cultural restaurants but, and also set up your own restaurant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we I've opened several several restaurants, not exclusively my restaurants with other people obviously doing things. The kind of formative experience I had doing opening restaurants was way was my very very first was a failure actually. And was my first attempt at opening a restaurant in Atlanta. There's we worked with this guy called Uden Jatar and he wanted to open a bistro called Blue Earth Bistro. But uh we were not interested, especially he was not interested in simply just having a restaurant to have a restaurant. He wanted to have a restaurant as part of a larger community movement. And that was very inspiring to me. So we had ideas where there would be a sliding scale for what you could pay, depending on if you were from the neighborhood we were, we were uh, opening in, because we would open it all in underprivileged neighborhoods, uh, depending on income. Obviously, it's super difficult to enact this, mm. so it didn't work.
0: Because food very much connects, you know, people and um, builds a community and that's the area that you're interested in and you know you said you set up a restaurant that was a, a failure why was it a failure what did you learn from that
1: well the restaurant itself wasn't a failure the attempt to set up a restaurant was a failure so we tried to do it in 2008 and then there was one of the crises that resulted in an inability to raise any money whatsoever so that was it but it was still a good idea
0: yeah but you learn from learn from your failure. exactly so you know it's it's a learning curve to sort of you know make mistakes and then start all over again what and the food industry in in san francisco um, is very diverse obviously with the asian influence and also in in new york yeah. so you had you were you know exposed to a lot of you know great you know a, a sort of journey of of cuisine yeah absolutely and new york
1: is is one of those interesting cities where you can get on the train and you can go from Italy to Russia in 50 minutes just by taking the train. And the food is super diverse there. The people are super diverse. There. It's really wonderful. The, what I worked when I was in New York, I worked at a museum called the Museum of Food and Drink, mm. which was about the history of food and culture and, uh, and also the science behind food and culture and things like that. And I ran their lab and I also ran their culinary program. And that gave me an opportunity to meet chefs from all over the world because everyone comes to New York to do stuff. Right. that was a really good opportunity, really great.
0: And also, were you at the um, School of
1: Design? Yes, I did did lectures at Parsons School of Design, uh, which is part of the new school. We did their food design program. I would come and I would audit the students' inventions uh, of their industrial design program that were related to food specifically. And I also would give a lecture at NYU about tool use. And how tool use has affected cuisine in, in, in human development, let's say, but specifically in the design field.
0: Okay, tool 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 use as in terms of how you make the food. Tool use is in
1: yeah. Well, the food you make is defined by the tools you use, and the tools you use are defined by the food you make. Yeah. So you're a good example of how tools and eating affects us. Is you have you've got an overbite. Right? I have an overbite. Everybody has an overbite because that's the way that your teeth grow when you are not biting and chewing stuff. If you pick up a piece of meat and you bite it and you rip it, you develop an underbite or a whatever it's called when it's not over under. And that in European history, for most of European history, was however all the Europeans' teeth were. Uh, however, once people started eating with tools, everybody started developing an overbite, which meant that the food texture could be more uh, varied and more different because you have more ability to manipulate. Because you're not picking up and ripping food, you're eating with a tool. And the first tool that was invented to eat with was chopsticks. So if you look at the archaeological record of, ha- of Han China in the early, early part of the, let's say, I don't know, 10th century, everyone starts to have an overbite because they're eating with the tools. and they're mm. eating with, And then the food completely changes.
0: Yeah, okay, so the the food changes according to the tools you use to make it. Exactly. So that's it's an interesting way of, you know, looking at it. You know, especially when you think about, yeah, chopsticks and, you know, the type of food like, you know, sushi and it's kind of the food is designed around the chopsticks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the utilities that you use to make it, for example, Yes. Yeah. So so really your background has been in kind of, you know, understanding the design and the history and also the science behind food.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I do I do have a, a big interest in this food science, the food history, but also the the future of as well. is, is I think very important.
0: Which is what we're going to talk about.
1: Exactly, because it's all, you have to know the past in order to understand the future. Definitely.
0: Definitely. So you sort of grew up in um, the States and then you came to Barcelona only a couple of years ago. What brought you to Barcelona? How did you end up here? Because you talked about working at El Bully and...
1: Yeah, so I was the I was the head corporate chef for a big chain of restaurants in the United States. We had hundreds of locations all over the place. And I became very... Well, I was always interested in the connection between food and, and culture and history and science. And I wrote a paper about kind of... C- Attempting a unified theory of food, we'll call it. Taking the science, the technology, the culture, and combining it into one. And I sent this unified theory to the Albuy Institute, which had just opened in Plaza España, here in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. And they liked it, and they invited me to come and work with them on their research team, working on what is now the Buipedia, which they're periodically continuing to release. It's a mammoth project. So I worked here, and when I was here, I, I met Barcelona, and I really loved it, enjoyed it.
0: Wikipedia, we- uh,
1: the buipedia. Oh, the bully. Like El Bui. El and Bui, the encyclopedia. Yes,
0: exactly. So they've—I mean, I didn't know about this. They've um, built this encyclopedia behind food.
1: Exactly. Their their goal is is to is to do exactly what I was describing—a unified theory of food. But in order to first make a unified theory of food, you first have to catalog it. So they are big on encyclopedic understanding of why we do this, what we do, where does it come from, that kind of
0: yeah because I mean they're really a sort of lab behind food. and they were they were one of the first labs really exploring with molecule and food sort of you know basically being being adventurous, you know
1: yeah, absolutely. there's food, I mean there's there's been a lot of changes in the restaurant world, but there's you could definitely say there is food before and there's food after Elu. there's a very clear in restaurants. there's a very clear delineation.
0: And that's why El Bulli became famous, because they were one of the, the first It was to, the first, absolutely. It was the first, yeah. yeah. When, actually, I'm just trying to remember when El Bulli was set up. How, can you remember the date?
1: The story of El, El Bulli, it used to be an old putt-putt course on the coast of Brava, where tourists would come and play mini-golf. And this guy Ferran took over the kitchen in 1992, 1993, and started making fairly standard Mediterranean fare, but quite, you know, very French-influenced style. And then something happened in 1994, where he decided he wanted to start experimenting with, uh, with new technologies and new ideas, and his big... And so that was, in, that was in 1994, 1996, so in the late 90s, and then it kind of reached its pinnacle in, in the early 2000s. But his big, his big uh, I think, um, leap, his thing that made him very, very clever was he took things that were designed mostly for use in industrial applications and applied them to fine dining. So he used new modern technology and new modern techniques that perhaps weren't necessarily super new and modern from an, from an industrial standpoint, but to apply them to fine dining uh, was, a, was a breakthrough.
0: Mm-hmm. So he was kind of like, you know, scientifically making food. Exactly. Is there anyone else these days who has, who you know, followed suit in, that you kind of admire?
1: Well, there's, I mean, there's many, many disciples. The disciples of Ferran Adria are all over the, all over the world. Everyone is influenced by his work that he did, um, the, his approach to things. The techniques that he invented are new techniques, were new techniques, and now are part of everyone's, everyone's repertoire. Mm. The, there's a guy who directs, who's part of the El Bari group, which is their restaurant group, eh, Oja Santa, this chef called Paco. He's really great, in, and he's in Barcelona. I like, I like his work a lot.
0: Okay, and um, also there's the guy in London who's who set up the Heston Blumenthal.
1: Ah, yes, the fat duck. He's a, yeah. So he's another he's another one of those kind of scientifically minded minded people. It's true.
0: Yeah. So so he actually kind of influenced or, or built a new trend in food, basically. Yeah. yeah. This
1: this this kind of uh, that's how food food goes in trends like this. Mm. Both in trends of um, ingredients certain ingredients being very in vogue, but also for restaurants, the techniques that they use. And within the culinary sphere, it it used to not be like this. And this is one of the big things that Spain is very good at, specifically the group of Spanish chefs, is about collaborating and sharing these techniques. Mm -hmm. And once, and the other thing that we did that, that most restaurants didn't used to do is after every time they do a season, let's say, they publish a book explaining exactly how to do what they did. So it's not a secret. It used to be if you worked in the old French kitchens in the 80s, you work in, let's say, Marco Pierre White's kitchen in London. He's not going to tell you what's in the sauce. He's going to make you make the sauce and then not give you any guidance on how you could do it in your own restaurant. The difference yeah. with France is he gives you a guidebook of how to do it.
0: Yes. I mean, I remember like chefs from the, you know, in the old times, they had their secret recipes. Exactly. So no one could ever, you know, kind of copy what they did, basically. But nowadays, it's collaboration versus competition.
1: Exactly. I would say so. I think it's much more of a collaboration.
0: Yeah. And are you kind of exploring that in terms of what, you know, when you're sort of working with chefs, are you collaborating?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when we're working with chefs at at Remy, we are trying to create food, basically food for robots, food for the, the food of the future, technological food. And in order to do that, it's imperative that you have an ongoing conversation with the leading chefs around the world hmm okay you so, ask them not only for recipes but for new techniques so you have to keep an eye out and see what people are doing that's uh that's interesting fun useful
0: okay so you, you came to barcelona you know having worked with El Bulli, and then how did you discover remy robotics
1: well i was working at the museum of food and drink in new york was back in new york and i was looking for a way to get back to barcelona
0: why was basically. that because you felt you wanted to be here
1: yeah i just liked barcelona a lot it's i've yeah just a big fan of catalonia barcelona I was a big Juan Miró fan when I was a child, uh, so just excited to come back to Barcelona. So I was actively looking to come back to Barcelona, and I found Rima Robotics and started talking to them.
0: Oh, great. And they've only been around since 2018.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: And, you know, how are they sort of kind of like building the future of sort of food technology in the kitchens, for example?
1: Well, the thing about robotic cooking and well, food robots in general and food technology is that the the big drive... The big future of food, I think, is machine to machine communication rather than a robot operating like a human. You can't just take a robot and put it in a kitchen and give it a knife and expect it to, to work as a human does. And I think that's the main problem that most robotic companies do is, or most food technology companies do, go, two, will go one of two ways. Either they design a massive assembly line that, can, that has a lot of you know, plungers and pulleys and, and things that dispense, like dispensers. That's one way to do it. And the other way is to try to mimic what the human is doing, um, which is, you know, make make it flip a burger in the way that burgers are always flipped. Make it cut an onion in the way that onions are always cut. These are both fundamentally incorrect ways of doing things. You have to just take a step back and understand that the thing that the robot is very good at doing is communicating with other machines, not communicating with human machines. So you have to design machines that are for use with robots, and you have to design food. That is for use with robots as well. It requires a complete rethinking of the ecosystem around food.
0: Okay. But in terms of, you know, working robot robots working with, you know, human skills, is that are they still sort of keeping that in mind? Well, I mean, to to
1: an extent, there are some human skills that robots like the application of heat to food. Is that a human skill? Or is that a it's kind of one of the fundamental parts of cooking? But I would say we're not attempting to mimic what humans do in the kitchen. No, we're trying to produce at the end result something that is virtually more or less similar to what humans would
0: produce in the kitchen. Okay. So your role is to kind of translate, you know, in terms of, you know, how food is made and then and then connecting it with the robots to make it basically.
1: Exactly. My role is essentially to take food, take gastronomy food, drink whatever take that and translate it for use in with a robot as the center as the central user using uh smart connected equipment because for example like a thermomix you have super advanced thermomixes which is a kind of a blender that also heats things up and more or less it's a blender that heats things up but it has a bunch of other functions it has certain amounts of steam it can apply it has certain amounts of pulsing blending it can do it's got a but it's got a a book for its use about this thick uh but there's no person that would be able to operate it in, this, in, the, way, in the ultimate way it should be operated. And that requires another machine to do it properly and exactly. Mm-hmm. So these smart devices, which are designed to make our lives easier and do, can be improved a little bit for use with robots.
0: Okay. Who are the, who are the founders behind Remy Robotics?
1: Our CEO is Igor Ivanov, mm-hmm. and he, he's our uh, CEO. Yeah.
0: Okay, and his background is in the, in the
1: restaurant? his background his background is um he was in the car industry he founded a company in in london called arrival which is a which is an electric car company Mm -hmm. and before that he was he was working in telecom industry
0: interesting Yeah. yeah it's great to have a sort of diverse background isn't it when it comes to building something new
1: yeah, absolutely. I think so.
0: Yeah. And, and and obviously, there's quite a lot of people, you know, with different backgrounds working at Remy Robotics.
1: Yeah, so we have, a, we have a, a huge... We've got people from about 30 different countries, I think, working for us. A huge amount of people. Very, very talented. Some of the best and most interesting people I've ever worked with. Because I don't come from a technology background. I come from a cooking background. But we have... Uh, We have computer vision engineers, robot movement engineers who are doing all sorts of amazing work. We have this one guy. When I first worked at the company, we were having big trouble picking up a burger. We were trying to pick up burgers. We don't pick up burgers anymore. We were trying to pick up this burger. And we then made a new hire. So we were trying... The idea is you want to scoop scoop the burger and pick it up like this, which is a very difficult action. Kind of get it from underneath and, and levitate it. And we were having endless difficulty with that i didn't understand why it was such a problem but apparently it's a it's a big problem because of the slipperiness of the burger and the, you have to get the gripper it's a big deal uh and this is kind of what fundamentally makes robot cooking difficult right it's because things that i take for granted as mm. a cook mm-hmm. like i can pick up the burger becomes yeah. a big diff- a problem and anyway we hired this new guy called mingu who within a day was was like bouncing the burger on the on the flipper and manipulating it expertly it was, it was amazing to watch
0: Wow, so he he understood how to, you know, to converse that movement into into a sort of you know robotic. Exactly, exactly. Which is which is a skill and an art form in itself. Absolutely. So you know you come from a, from the food background, and then you're working with people from you know who were chemists and physicists and that. Yeah. So it's yeah, very. Absolutely. It's um it's sort of experimenting all the time. So you were experimenting with like. You know, picking up burgers, what are you sort of experimenting with now? What, how have you advanced?
1: We have, we've come, uh, three years, we've made huge, huge advances. It's been really interesting. Well, I think the main ad- advancement we made is in the understanding of, of what, of, of robot food, what I just described, is that robot food should be in no, not necessarily in no way related, but it's completely its own food. And once we made this change of mindset, this understanding that we don't, we don't need to mimic picking up a burger there's no reason you should be you don't need to flip a burger think about why you're flipping the burger and we made this change to realize that the the best way to move forward with robotic cooking and technological cooking is machine to machine communication with food designed specifically for the robots so we're designing food for robots basically we've done a lot of work with uh with moisture control a lot of work things that seem very small but are actually quite quite big
0: okay you're also using artificial intelligence as well
1: Yes, exactly. Most of it for to be able to understand for the computer vision, what the robot's looking at. So they teach it a lot of a lot of uh, show it a million pictures and then it can pick out what what what's what. And then the other aspects of artificial intelligence is the robot. We can drop a drop it into any restaurant. It can look around and it knows what piece of equipment it's looking at. It knows what tools it's using, all these kind of things.
0: So it's kind of working with data. And robots, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, data is a huge part of it.
0: How is this going to affect, though? Do you think, in terms of like the sort of labour of of people, you know, who are used to kind of working in kitchens? Do, do you think? Do you see robots working side by side with with human, you know, humans? Is it?
1: I don't necessarily see robots working side by side with humans in, in kitchens because I think it's fundamental that you build a kitchen for robots if you wanted to use it. But I do see automation as the future of, of of food, not necessarily the future of cooking in restaurants. I think cooking in restaurants is something that uh, is a different experience than necessarily the cooking and the providing of food. I think the cooking and providing of food in restaurants, we have to separate um, our idea of certain types of cooking in restaurants and another type of cooking in restaurants. It's easy to romanticize working in kitchens as you know, we've seen, we've all, there's a million TV shows now about the celebrity chefs and chefs working in kitchens and it's all, it's very passionate, it's very artistic, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And this is, I don't think that's going anywhere, right? It's a, uh, you have this, we all have this creative boil that needs to be lanced once in a while by cooking really wonderful and interesting food. But at the flip side, food is a fundamental human right. People need to eat. People should be able to eat good food all the time, whenever they want in the easiest way possible. But at the same time, if we're going to say that food's a fundamental right. It should be super cheap, and if the food's super cheap, then you can't pay the cook anything. So, if you mm. can't pay the cook anything, the robot should do it.
0: Okay, so it's kind of like cutting costs and saving time. I would say so. Mm. And what other sort of, you know, trends do you see when it comes to kind of, you know, technology working alongside food in the future?
1: Well, let me see here. Technology and food in the future. I think it's it allows a more precise kind of cooking because you have the robot controlling the the machine or maybe not even I say the robot because like I said you have to you've got to excuse my my kind of crass robotic language I'm probably saying the incorrect thing but I say the robot controls the machine really there's probably some software that's doing it and the robot's got nothing to do with it but anyway the robot controls the machine it can control the machine in such a precise and exact way that you can cook the food exactly the way it needs to be cooked every single time um and you can do it you can have logistic operations and understanding of logistics that will reduce and eliminate food waste. You can have um, cooking things just before someone needs to eat it and that kind of thing means that uh, you don't waste as much food. It means that the food is uh, designed for being transported let's say for example, because if I know if I want to sell you a burger, I know that it's got to travel for twenty minutes. I can design the food that it will work and it'll be delicious in twenty minutes but the level of precision required to do that is a, is software and robotics can do that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, you know, robotics is affecting every link in the f- food supply chain as well, in terms of, you know, um, agriculture and also um, manufacturing, food packaging, and food delivery. So there's, you know, in many ways, ro- robots are kind of taking over in, in all these areas and also, you know... Helping with providing food in a more sustainable way. Absolutely. And and so you know in terms of the sort of how offic- how quickly do you think this is going to take over? How how quickly do you think robots will come in? Well, I mean, pay- there there was a
1: there it was it was happening slowly but surely. Let's say in large in more large companies that wanted to slowly move towards automation and things like that. But I think one of the big pushes that happened in the world of automation is everyone, all the borders closed and everyone had to stay home for half a year, most of a year last year. And I think that was a big push towards automation, working in the kitchens. I think it's not so much of a matter of, of if it will happen, it's more of when it will happen. And I would say you already see in, in, in the East, in China especially, a lot of robotic uh, and mechatronic mostly restaurants that are cooking food. You see a lot of new technology within agriculture of harvesting robots fertilizing robots those kind of things
0: Mm-hmm. and and sort of yeah planting seeds i mean and using drones as well exactly
1: for for pesticide uh distribution for checking to see what's what it's very interesting
0: have you have you explored this area at all have you actually sort of visited farms and
1: i've been to i've we've been to farms we went on a we went on a company trip to a to a, a pear, a pear grow? What's a, what's a pear orchard? Is it still an orchard?
0: It, uh, it is an orchard, yeah. Okay, so we went to an yeah. orchard,
1: a pear orchard, where they make, uh, they make pears, obviously. And they were experimenting, they were working with a, a group of university students that were trying to make something that would a, a, be able to harvest the pears, but be able to see when the pear is at its exact moment. Because when, when, when one is making pears, you actually don't let just all the pears grow. You want to see what the best-looking pair is and then get rid of the other little ones around it to make sure that all the energy of the plant goes into producing this one pair. So for this one pair to exist, you have to trim off several little buds. And they were working on computer vision and artificial intelligence to look at this, to recognize this is the strongest pair, get rid of these these two little ones that would maybe become pairs in the future. So they were working on something like that, super interesting.
0: So technology is, is basically making things so much more efficient, isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole idea. I mean, the only worry is, you know, in terms of jobs, there's going to be a massive job loss in, in sort of, you know, in the food industry.
1: This is fundamentally true, but also fundamentally uh, necessary and probably quite good. Because as I said, working in, a, working in a kitchen, you think working in a kitchen is tough. Go pick pears. Like, that's even worse than working in the kitchen.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, gone are the days of, you know, long hours, like, you know, chefs. Yeah, they have long hours in the kitchen, don't they?
1: They have, they do have uh, hugely long hours in the kitchen, and that that is that's changing with more labour rights and more uh, kind of stronger employee rights within the kitchens. But within the agricultural sector, that's still a much bigger problem than it than it is in the kitchens. You take all the all the problems of labour has in the kitchen, you multiply it by hundred, and that's more of the agricultural sector's problem, because yeah. the agricultural sector relies on a huge amount of very low-paid labour which is entirely necessary for the entire country and civilization to function. You need people to, to be picking the crops. And if, for example, there's a global pandemic and your borders closed, and there's no one there to, to pick the crops and the whole system collapses. But you're not paying these essential workers enough to make them be actually essential, to be able to afford the food that they're picking, for example. So that should all be automated. And that is technically a job loss of many millions of people, out of work, picking crops. But the reason they are picking crops is because the system is structured in such a way that it requires a permanent underclass of people who are doing the labor that feeds the people above them. So by rem- by removing that labor, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. It's freeing people up to do other
0: things. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the and the farm farming industry, I mean, are they sort of concerned? I mean, I, I know the UK obviously have had issues in terms of, um, you know, farmers being sort of out of work, especially now with brexit in the uk right so i mean do you do you see that a problem in the future like farmers out of
1: work well not really not so much there's there's definitely solutions to to farm problems i mean the the biggest farm problem right now is well, what like a sixth of the world's population is currently on strike in india that's farmers uh and the way the reason they're striking is because the state refused to guarantee the price of their crops so they wanted to move their price of their crops away from what the state minimum is to a free market, that is to say, n- not very much money paid for each crop, so everyone goes on strike. So if you create systems that make it so that farmers can survive, there won't be a farm shortage.
0: Okay. And it's not, again, it's about bringing, you know, it's collaboration, isn't it? In terms of, you know, coming together and working together and, you know, provi- you know finding crops from different farms and, you know, building a community around that.
1: Absolutely. I think it's, it's all about collaboration and community. You can have, there is one, there's one future that I'm, that I'm describing here, which is like a, one huge, hyper-efficient farm that's producing millions and millions of tons of food to feed everyone in the world. But then the other option, which is equally enabled by technology, is many, many small farms producing different things for different people in different communities, working together. Because it's, it's food that feeds us, and so we should, we should be a part of that. And technology enables people to do it easily without the back-breaking labor.
0: Mhm. Okay. What other trends do you see in terms of the food industry?
1: Well, the food industry is the food industry is very interesting. For so I think coronavirus transformed the entire food industry globally, especially in Europe and the UK and the United States as well. Because re- all the restaurants closed, everyone moved towards delivery. Uh, everyone had to start thinking about how to do delivery, how to work with less people in the kitchen, how to work with less money coming in. The saying in the United States kitchens is, 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 if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it." Well, it, it broke in like a very severe way, so it was required to be fixed. So I think delivery is a huge trend that's going to happen and continue.
0: Which is what we're seeing a lot a lot of now, isn't it? I mean, especially in Spain, would never think about <laughs> right exactly delivery. But I mean, Glovo is massively busy right now, and you know, it's because people are realizing it's. Um, it's a it's a convenient way to to eat at home.
1: Absolutely, it's if people can't can't or don't want to cook at home, you should be able to order something as easy and as simply and get it uh, for you delivered. The act of eating at a restaurant and having food someone else has cooked for you is no longer, I think, a luxury. It's not something that you would go and have. Make sure it's an experience. You know, I think the other thing coronavirus moved moved us towards is is a kind of away from esoteric. Uh, 50 plate tasting menus i think with the onset of a global pandemic people want comfort food people want things that make them comfortable make them feel safe make them feel healthy so you're more likely to deliver to get delivered something very healthy and very delicious and warming than you are to brave the outside and sit outside and taste 20 bites that are mind-blowing i think there's a place for that but i think more the other one
0: and i also think transparency in the food industry that's very important. I mean, you know, to know what you're eating and where it comes from, and also farm to table. Absolutely. Um, I've came across a, a recently, um, a, 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 sorry, sorry, a, um, a plant based restaurant here called Honest. Honest, um, what's it called? Honest Greens. Yeah, yeah. You know about them?
1: Absolutely. I think. I mean, plant based eating is is logical and reasonable. We should do it.
0: But, but uh, they, you know, they set up, what, three years ago in Portugal, I think it was, and then came here. But uh, they've taken off. And plus fact you know, what they're showing in terms of what, how they make the food is very much where the food comes from.
1: Exactly. I, I mean, that's, that kind of transparency is essential to this feeling of what I'm describing is that what people want is they want to feel safe with the food that they're eating not only in terms of is it good for you, but also is it good for where it comes from? Is it good for the environment? Because we still have to deal with the climate catastrophe, and a lot of that comes from agriculture.
0: Yeah, it's all related.
1: Everything is related, yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, what What other... Um, in terms of restaurants here, do you have any kind of favourite restaurants and, and places that you kind of feel are kind of carving the way in terms of food?
1: Well, the thing is, for me having only been here about two years two years almost then one year all the restaurants were closed so i didn't get to go to too many restaurants that was last year obviously that was yeah. last year exactly so into that into in 2020 every restaurant was closed but just prior to them closing i went to this restaurant oja santa that I said i think that was a real, that's a really great restaurant the best one i've been to in barcelona where is that it's in i've no idea where it is actually
0: okay but
1: oh. But it's, uh, t- yeah, describe it. Why do you love it? So it's a Mexican restaurant. Obstens- ostensibly, it's a Mexican restaurant. But the, what the chef does there is he takes uh, Mexican ingredients, mm. traditional Mexican ingredients, we'll say, and then transforms them using interesting technology and interesting science into playful and, and really interactive and interesting dishes. So he has one dish, which is, and this is, well, this is a very specific Mexican thing, right? So in Mexico, you get these little cakes of chocolate that you make hot chocolate with it's called abuela chocolate like grandma chocolate nice, yeah. it's uh, sweet and it comes in a little cake and every single person in mexico knows what this is it's very classic it's very homey it's like your grandma would make it you take the chocolate you break it up you put it into some liquid you make some hot chocolate with it it's mediocre hot chocolate but it's got you know it's got a uh, a special place in your heart and he makes this dessert where he makes a mold that looks exactly like this abuela hot chocolate and fills it with a chocolate cream that tastes the same as the, uh, the hot chocolate your grandma would make you.
0: Amazing. So actually, that is like relating to food in a way that going back to your sort of the old, you know, style of recipes, but kind of making it, you know, modernizing it, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, because ter- you know, actually, when you think about creating food, people like to go back to basics, in terms of you know the way food is made do you yeah. think do you think that is another trend that we're seeing
1: i think so i think people like people like uh food that has a sense of place that exists within within a sense within a sense of place to, to quote noma right food with a sense of place and time or what is noma's noma's brand is a sense of place in nordic cuisine so they're all about a space and a time and this food is here for this place and for this time and i think food is like that. But in order to understand your sense of place in time, you, everyone has cultural memories that the food is, food is so essential to your cultural identity and your cultural memory that uh, it's like smell creates memories immediately. Yeah. It always harkens you back. Or the, the beginning of In Search of Lost Time, right? It begins with food. Proust eats a, eats a Madeline. And then, you know, 9,000 pages later, he's finally finished the Madeline. And it brings you back to a sense of place, structure, history. It's all, food is the most powerful, I think, memory gripper.
0: Mm, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's taking you, it's, it's sort of working with your senses and, and, a, and, as you said, a place and time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, talking about like Noma, have you visited Noma? You? I've
1: never been to Noma, no. But I think Noma is one of the, there's another change with Noma. Noma made a very, very big leap when they did their, their restaurant in the jungle of Mexico. So everyone, I would assume most people are familiar with Nome. It's the very famous restaurant in Copenhagen with René Redzepi. And they did a restaurant in the middle of the jungle Amazing. in Mexico where they built everything and it was great. Um, and they made a big effort to make people who, people who lived there in the, in the community around where they built the restaurant, they invited them and then also other people came from outside. And it was terrifically expensive impossible I don't know anyone and I know a lot of food people I think I know a friend of a friend of mine was there but like very tangential connected no one went to the restaurant but we all know it happened we all saw it happened we know what food they made we know how they made it and we can watch the documentary about the food being made and then we can follow on Instagram the food being made we can look at what people ate and what they kind of represent especially that moment is food is a like kind of a post-digital food whereas for Anne is one sea change, then I would say this kind of food in the age of digital reproduction that is Noma's restaurant is the example of.
0: Right. And, and you know, in terms of um, places that is creating food, which is, you know, using different, exper- or being experimental, would you say that Catalonia is, like, one of the top places for that?
1: I think so. I think Catalonia is continually, continually... Uh, doing wonderful things and c- continually pushing boundaries, and doing interesting and exciting exciting things unlike anywhere else in, in the world. The thing I think that makes Catalonia separate from a place like Copenhagen or a place like New York is in New York, if you want to do a restaurant, you you attempt to, because you have such a diverse group of people there, you want to create kind of a fusion food that is... Traditional to something. You want to have some kind of tradition behind it. Uh, be it making a new style of Chinese noodles or something like that. Uh, and in Copenhagen, again, you want to have tradition within the ingredients that you're using and then use different techniques from all over the world. So they are anchoring themselves with their ingredients and New York is anchoring itself with its cultural cultural background of whatever chef it is. But what Spain does is Spain is much more anarchic about the whole thing. They are very much, well, uh, Catalonia especially is very anarchic about the the design of recipes and the design of menus is. They take cuisines, disparate cuisines from all over the world that would never be connected together. Take techniques from totally different things and make completely completely new things that aren't that are tendentially founded in tradition and ingredients and things like that, but totally new.
0: Okay. So is that why Remy Robotics kind of, you know, decided to base themselves here?
1: I think so. I think it's the it's the, it's the logical place for for the removal of rules behind what can and cannot be done within food, you need to not have any preconceived boundaries. notions and boundaries. Exactly.
0: Okay, so they really are exploring, and and what are you working on at the moment? Can you can you t- delve divulge into some projects that you're working on?
1: Well, I mean, so my projects, I do my projects are are various. So we have basically my ultimate goal is to figure out how to do every style of food possible. That's my goal. So. In a very methodical way, I'm just m- making my way through uh, different food and different dishes. I'm currently working on dumplings uh, for Lunar New Year, in fact. It's yeah, which is today. Today, in fact.
0: Yeah, it's the Year of the Ox. It is, Year yeah. of the Ox. Last year was the Year of the Rat, and uh, I don't know much about the Ox. Do you, do you know much about the Ox?
1: I think the Ox is, is, uh, is steady and strong in his, in his uh, movements.
0: Okay, good. Well, that sounds positive then, doesn't it? I would say so, probably. <laughs> Unlike the rat?
1: Unlike the rat, which is less positive, it's true.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so you're working on dumplings. Are you understanding, like, the history of, you know, dumplings? Is that kind of where you come in?
1: I mean, I like to know the history of dumplings. And the history of dumplings is... Actually, the history of dumplings is super interesting, if you'd like me to talk about it. It's the... We have actual archaeological evidence of a dumpling that's 3,000 years old. It was part of the of the things that were found in the same area that was the uh, the terracotta army. Those guys, mm. and we have fossil like literally fossilized dumplings uh, from a period pre 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 the first emperor. You have fossilized dumplings, and the shape of the dumplings is the same shape that we use now for dumplings. It's not changed. In the pyramids have risen, and the dumpling remains the same. And the dumpling is. Uh, is one of the great success stories of international trade it starts in China where it's called the jiaozi and it moves its way along the Silk Road it goes through Russia and it becomes being called a uh, pelmeni. goes ends up in Ukraine it's called vareniki if you were to go through the Asian way you end up with mantus in in Korea you end up with mountus in uh, Mongolia and all the way through the Silk Road every country that the Silk Road touches does a version of this these dumplings you have raviolis in in Italy, yeah. which is the end of the Silk Road, yes. and then past that, no more dumplings.
0: Yes. Yeah, I actually did an experience with, um, uh, with a chef who kind of followed the Silk Road. I mean, I, I do think, you know, you, you were talking about food um, not doing so much the tasting menus now. Right. But we still want experiences in the food. In, I think so. You know, going eating out, and you know, I think people want to explore. It's a way of traveling with food.
1: I think so. I think when I, when, I, when I mean the tasting menu is not happening, I mean it's not happening now. It will come back for sure. I just mean in the kind of exact, uh, this moment of, of, of pandemic, we want more safety than we want Definitely. large tasting menus. But I think food allows us to explore and understand cultures better than almost any other way. And languages. And languages for sure, for sure. Yeah. So I, no, no, please.
0: No, no, you were talking about Norman Chomsky and, and how did you how are you sort of translating his work?
1: Right. So I have the I have the the thing that makes us human, I think, and I don't think many people would disagree with me, is the our our language ability, right? And our language ability is what allows us to communicate with the world, allows us to describe the world, allows us to write things down, allows us to go to the moon and build microphones and all these kind of things. And I think language is also I think food can be understood as a kind of language and the food that you cook and the food that you're specifically your mother and your grandmother and her mother cooked is passed down as a type of language into your into your cultural understanding of the world and the food and techniques that you use and the techniques that we use are can be understood as kind of the grammar of our cooking language so if i am I am Well, okay, I am. So if I'm a European guy and then I'm using European cooking techniques, I will use flat pans, I will use small knives, I will use forks, I will use a certain set of ingredients and a certain set of spices. If I am Indian chef, I will use a different shaped knife, which results in different shaped uh, vegetables, which results in different textures of food. Uh, my environment is giving me the vocabulary in, in the vegetables and the spices and the meats and the things I'm cooking. So you take this vocabulary that you have, which is the ingredients around you, you take the grammar that you have that comes from your your tools that are around you and you combine this in such a way that you create a language of cooking that is inevitable. There is no other place that, uh, like, dandan noodles could only exist in Sichuan. They mm-hmm. come from, it's the only logical place to it. Haggis could only be from Scotland, right? If we mm. want to use Scottish example. Mm-hmm. These kind of... Very specific things that seem like uh, very mundane are, in fact, examples of just like they say each language is a contains within it all the languages that built it, and we have living fossils and archaeology of language, or if the, the idea of Foucault, if you take Foucault's book, "The Archaeology of Knowledge," mm-hmm. every single idea that Foucault has or analyzes in this book, Contains within it all the previous ideas. It's a. It's inevitable that this idea would happen if you look at it in this kind. Of, in this kind of sense, and mm. I think food
0: is the same thing. Mm-hmm. So you're you're amazing in the way that you really understand the history of food and where it comes from and how it's made and and also, your I mean what you're doing is translating that to robotics in terms of how they make the food.
1: Exactly, I see robotics, automation, and technology as simply the next step in this understanding of food. History, structure, and ideas.
0: Okay, so what will the robots do with the dumplings, for example?
1: Well, this exactly. I'll get back to me, I'll tell you in a month, basically. But what we're trying to do is I want them to, there's multiple ways you can do it. We want to see if the robot can fold the dumpling pretty quickly. Uh, see if it's possible. We want to see if the robot can cook the dumpling. I want to see if the robot can analyze the outside of a dumpling to know when it's cooked, what's on the inside of a dumpling. Because we, can, we cannot do that, but I have an idea if we take a thermal image of each dumpling, let's say, and then we show an AI a million images of cooked dumplings, can then the AI know the temperature in the middle just based on what the outside looks like? I don't know the answer. The main problem we have is that in order to cook dumplings, you make a lot of steam. And the one thing cameras don't like is a lot of steam. So that's
0: so I'm, Yeah, because you're filming what you're doing, basically. Well,
1: no, because we want to do, we take pictures huh with cameras
0: i see amazing is china doing this already i don't know actually
1: i would imagine so probably not this specific use case that i mentioned but they definitely have machines that can make dumplings like there exists machine we could buy a machine that makes a dumpling but more interested in teaching a robot how to do something in a more flexible way
0: so why is remy robotics different to any other kind of robotics um, you know, working with food. How do they distinguish themselves?
1: I think what makes us different is is the understanding that we're not. It's not a robot working with food. It's a entire ecosystem around a robot. That the robot is the enabler of a much larger thing. Is we are a robotics company, but actually we're a food company, more than a robotics company. Well, let's say equally equally as a robotics company. Our end product is not the robot. We're not going to sell the robot to someone. Our end product is the people that are purchasing the food. The people that are that are buying the food, the people that are going to be eating the food. That is more of our customer than uh, a restaurant that wants a robot. So I think that separates us different, a little bit.
0: I see. So you're focused on the customer.
1: Exactly. exactly.
0: Okay. And, and when you say you're focused on the customer, in terms of what, eating at home or, yeah? Yeah, mostly. So it's food distribution.
1: Yes, I would think so, which is a big problem.
0: Okay, and and you're making it more efficient in terms of food and distribution.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we're I mean our goal is, is probably nothing nothing less than a complete restructuring of the way food is distributed in in the world more or
0: less. Okay, and you're working with factories and. Yeah, we have a lot of div- we have a lot of suppliers that
1: are giving us giving us food, giving us uh, products. But what, one of our one of our main jobs is to design this food because no factory is designing food that's used for robots. We have to invent all that. There exists factories that are very, very good at, at food for restaurants. So even, even any restaurant you go to in Barcelona, there's a level of pre-processing with all of their ingredients that comes from a factory. Very few restaurants are purchasing potatoes directly from a farmer and cleaning them, peeling them, cutting them, blanching them, and then waiting until you order chips or french fries. Most of them buy frozen, frozen french fries or frozen chips. And there, there exist factories that are very good at making those, those kind of pre-processed ingredients. Which is not bad. It allows every restaurant to minimize labor costs, make things much easier. But all of that is still designed for human use, human tool use. Um, so what part of what my job is doing is taking these ideas from industrialization, and instead of the end user being a, ki- a cook in a kitchen, it's a robot with various connected devices around it.
0: I see. So the robot is your is your customer.
1: In my customer. Yeah. yeah, I cook for the robot for yeah. sure. that's my my job. That's your job. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. How
0: interesting! And in terms of Remi robotics, what else can we see? You know, coming out of the the, the lab.
1: Well, we've got a lot of products on the horizon. We're we uh, like I said, we continue. We're continuing to develop new dishes and new uh, product categories, that kind of stuff. I we
0: invented a new way of doing fish that's quite cool. So. Wow, so they they they're just exploring all the time. Absolutely, and the, and their customers are all around the world, or it's, you know, where where do they sell to?
1: Well, we're based in Barcelona, so we are we mostly sell of our stuff all here in Barcelona.
0: Okay, but will that expand once COVID restrictions? Yeah, yeah are I would think east? so.
1: The idea is that is that it's a it's a system that is flexible and and can be can be used anywhere.
0: Okay, and and they've got a, a company in in London, Kinetics, which are investing in.
1: Yeah, that's kind of the, the investment company of, of Remy, I believe.
0: Okay, interesting. So, John, I mean, there's so much to talk about in the food industry, but, you know, where do, where do you sort of see yourself going on your journey in the food industry?
1: Well, I mean, I would like to continue what I'm doing, actually. I, uh, I enjoy the kind of research and development and exploration, creating food for robots, ultimately creating food for people through robots. Um, so I would hope to continue doing this I like doing that kind of thing actually back when I used to have a Twitter back in 2010 or something I said that what I really want to do is move to Barcelona and, and work with food robots or food technology
0: and you wrote that on Twitter?
1: Uh, yeah and like years and years and years ago and so I pinned it to my, to my Twitter to remind myself that that's you, you have to kind of yeah, yeah, visualize where you want to be absolutely
0: yeah it's, it's in your subconscious I would think so yeah. So, um, and any kind of food, you know, restaurant recommendations that we can sort of take from you in terms of places that you've been to? And
1: in, to Bar- in Barcelona? Mm-hmm. Well, I can, or, give you, I can give you one in New York also. Yeah. So, the best, well, the best restaurant you should go to in New York is a place called Ada. The chef is called Chinta and Pandeya, and it's an incredible regional Indian food. It's very, very, del- very delicious. And I think regionality within Indian food is going to be a big thing in the U.S. soon. I think in Europe, you're probably going to see the regionality of Chinese food exploding. But my favorite food to go and eat in Barcelona is actually not in Barcelona, but it's in the Corridor Mountains in Montenegre, mm-hmm. up in up in Maresme. Mm-hmm. And they have these kind of very typically Catalan houses, the Macias or maizas. Mises, mm-hmm. yeah. Maizias, which are huge, very... Big structural farmhouses, let's say, and a lot of them are converted to restaurants now. Have it's more or less the same menu and more or less the same ingredients, and been doing the same thing for years and years. And it's a very, if you want a time and place in uh, in Barcelona and Catalonia, I really like to go to those places in the mountains and get some galta and that kind of
0: thing. So you're going, you're, what you what what you like about it is going back to kind of basics and, yeah. and sort of the history of food.
1: Absolutely, I I like that. Personally, I like that stuff a yeah.
0: lot. And also, um, you enjoy, as well as food, you enjoy exploring the wine and the...
1: Yes, yes, for sure. I'm
0: artisan, artisan beer as well.
1: Exactly. I mean, in anything that has a kind of history and a story behind it interests interests me greatly, especially something that you can taste the place in. And wine is, for years, people have talked about what you can taste the history and in the, in the hill and the, the sun and wine and all that. And you can also taste that, I think, in restaurants and food that they're making
0: yeah and I think people want to hear stories. That's what you know in terms of where the food comes from and where the wine comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And will will you be teaching at all about food at, here at Harbour Space?
1: Yeah, I hope to do a lecture. We'll talk a little bit about food design, about the understanding of food, where we got, why we got
0: where we are, that kind of thing. Wonderful. Well, John, it's been very nice talking to you, and you know you're very knowledgeable about you know the history and uh, exploring uh, the food industry. And, um, you know, we look forward to sort of hearing more from you in the future. And thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. This was another episode of the See You Tomorrow podcast, introducing you to brilliant minds and ideas. Find us on the YouTube channel, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. As always, see you next Thursday.